Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy city executives and entrepreneurs empowered and healthy. I'm Stephanie Webster, I'm a nutritional therapist based in Harley Street, London, and I specialise in gut health, fat loss and hormone optimization therapy for the over 40s. Today I have the pleasure of having Mr. Alistair Windsor on the show. He is a colorectal surgeon from London head of the abdominal wall unit at UCLH and a founder member of the Surgical Europeans Crohn's and Colitis Organization. I'm very excited about that because I have ulcerative colitis myself and the wealth of knowledge I found on your website is just extraordinary. So, a committed surgical trainer and educator, he has over 200 publications published and wildly regarded as a leader in the field of colorectal disease, Alistair also maintains a busy clinical practice in the broader aspects of colorectal surgery, including minimal access surgery, endoscopy, colonoscopy, colorectal cancer, Crohn's, colitis, diverticular disease, prolapse, and incontinence. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Alistair. Pleasure. So, how did you come to specialize in colorectal diseases? I often get asked. Um, actually, I started out life, would you believe, as a cardiac surgeon. That's what I wanted to do. Um, but during my training, there was obviously changes in the way cardiac surgery and cardiac conditions were treated, and it looked like there wasn't going to be an awful lot of cardiac surgery when I came to get a consultant's job. And it just so happens that the next training job I did was with a colorectal surgeon who was a very inspirational teacher, um, and I got interested in and um, started to become a colorectal surgeon, never really looked back. Um, I do wonder whether my family sometimes think I should have stayed as a more glamorous cardiac surgeon, but that's what I've ended up doing, ca- uh, colorectal surgery. So is it more glamorous? I don't think so. I think it's just the thought, isn't it? People think about colorectal surgery and bowels and bottoms and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I guess the uh, the cardiac surgeons were always considered to be slightly more glamorous. But uh, there's plenty of glamour in colorectal surgery. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Well, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in uh, anything to do with bums and bottoms and all sorts of um, anything gory. Because it, it doesn't get spoken about. You know, there's a lot of no, embarrassment. And, uh, well, we and may come to that later. I think that's a very important fact. That, yeah, um, sure. Often it isn't spoken about. There's a lot of embarrassment. And in fact, you know, that's sometimes, uh, that's sometimes a major problem. It is because my clients suffer with, with symptoms. If they have to go to an event, they have to look elegant. They're wearing a dress. They're bloated. They don't know why. Um, they, they haven't been uh, to the bathroom for over a week. You know, and that 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 is a problem, and it doesn't get spoken of about. Anyway, never mind. So, um, today we'll be discussing colorectal cancer. So let's explain a little bit about what that is, what what what, uh, what the symptoms might be, what causes it, and uh, it's a speciality of yours. So, indeed. So, uh, well, it's a it's a very common, unfortunately, malignant condition, and I think people often um, get a little bit confused about the term malignancy. All malignancy means is um, that it's a tumour that can invade tissue and can spread to other tissue, unlike a benign tumour, which can't do either of those things. Um, colon cancer is one of the four commonest causes of cancer in the UK, and we reckon something like 40,000 cases, new cases a year in the UK. So it's a big burden, a big problem. Um, it can affect, and again, there's lots of different words for this and sometimes some confusion, but it affects the large intestine or the large bowel, which is essentially the colon and the rectum, which is about the last meter of your gut. So it doesn't, that's the bit that, that has the problem and therefore it's a fairly accessible piece of bowel that we can look at and that's very important for colon cancer, obviously. So it's, it's a, a malignant condition that affects that last meter of your intestine. 
Okay. And is it, is colon rectal, is it on the rise? Is colon cancer on the rise? Uh, well, so so that's an interesting question. Uh, I think the, the simple answer to that is no, that, that the incidence in the Western world is probably pretty stable. Um, there are other parts of the developing world where we see it rising, and that, that again, we'll come back to that, but that may well be a dietary issue and all those other um, sort of environmental issues. There is a surprising um, and slightly worrying increase in incidence in young people, um, and we we definitely we noticed it probably about five, six, maybe eight, nine years ago that we we seem to be seeing a lot more young people uh, with colon cancer than we'd seen before. And when young, I mean their sort of thirties and forties, which is unusual because really it's a disease of the elderly, if you like. It's, it tends to happen much much uh, older. Um, and that incidence now has very clearly been documented. And again, it's a, it's a Western world thing, it's a country thing. So North America, Canada, Northern Europe, very definitely increases in the incidence in young people. Um, and again, it, it's unclear quite why that might be the case. But so I would, I would argue that across the board, it's about stable in terms of incidence, but there are pockets uh, of, of particular individuals where they might be increasing risk. And it's, wonder, it's, it's a wonder as to why that is, because common knowledge would assume that we're getting healthier and healthier uh, as, we, as we go on. However, there are natural risk factors in developing colorectal cancer, and yep. they can be avoided with lifestyle factors. And I'm all for having healthy habits that prevent disease from setting in. So what have you found to be useful? So, that, so that's a... Yeah, I mean, what are the natural risk factors? And I think that's a, a, a complicated issue and a difficult issue. And, and just going back a little bit in terms of what causes colon cancer, and I think nowadays we recognise three very different pathways. So there are a subgroup of patients, a small subgroup of patients, probably about 5%, who will have a genetic predisposition. So they will inherit a gene defect from their parents, and they will inevitably get colon cancer when they're very young, normally in their 30s. And lifestyle probably is of no influence on that. That's going to happen whatever you do. Mm -hmm. um, there's then a group of about 15% who are familial. In other words, there are a number of members of the family that have had colon cancer, not a specific gene defect, but a high risk of developing cancer. And then the rest, the sort of 80% of sporadics who really um, are sort of um, people who've got no family history who tend to develop colon cancer as they get older. Um, and, and what influence the genetics of, the, of um, colon cancer has um, and how that interacts with the environmental factors is the complex bit. Um, it, and it's sometimes very difficult to study an isolated mm -hmm. dietary factor, for instance, or an environmental factor on its own because all these other things are, are, um, are involved. But, but I agree with you, there are very definitely, um, and I think probably dietary, you know, we know how important the diet is in, in many diseases of the gut, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease very specifically um, and obviously it has a, a role um, in, in colon cancer and that's probably what's happening in these young people it's probably an environmental issue um, and whilst I'd agree that, that there are many groups who are, are improving diets and everything else there's still a lot of, of people who, who don't eat terribly well a lot of them we may talk about a lot of sort of processed meats um, eating habits are not good and, and, and smoking, obesity, and we know that obesity is majorly on the rise in the UK. All mm -hmm. of those things have an influence on um, on the, the risks um, over and above your genetic risk of, of colon cancer. So I think there are 
there are environmental issues that we need to look very carefully at um, and hopefully be able to influence and reduce those uh, that, that, that risk of colon cancer. So in my practice, I attract uh, individuals with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And what I've found is sleep and hydration, avoiding stress, no processed food, eating well, fibre, but not too much fibre. You don't want it to be internally scraped, as it were, by um, if it's too textured, so is what I've observed. Um, more soluble fibres with a little bit of insoluble um, seems to be best. And really avoiding anything that causes inflammation seems to also link in with a healthy gut and therefore less predisposed for a cancer developing. I, again, I haven't done a study on that. It's just from what I've noticed with my clients and, and myself, but it's, not, it's, it's hardly thousands and millions of people yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'd, li- I'd like it to be. Um, but I, I think just general, general good habits. But it's funny how stress is also a factor, not just dietary, uh, but um, we can talk about gluten and, and dairy. I have found those to be quite pro-inflammatory uh, uh, and problematic for the gut lining. Yeah, I think, and, and I think you're, I mean, I'd agree with everything you said there. I think it's sometimes very difficult to, to pick out and, you know, let's take red meat, for instance. And can you prove that red meat is the cause of a number of disease processes? And mm-hmm. it, that, that can be slightly difficult. We know that, that, the, that your diet is hugely important in disease and, and across the board, all the things you've mentioned, colitis and, and Crohn's disease and many other conditions of the gut. Um, and whether that's an, a direct influence, like you're, you're mentioning, of, of inflammation, or is it a change in the gut flora? In other words, this huge um, number of bacteria that are hugely important um, and, and the, the relationship between us and our gut bacteria is massively important and how that all um, interacts. We just don't know at the moment. We're getting there and, and there's lots on the microbiome, the so-called zoo inside us that uh, um, that's so important. But the difficulty, of course, is if you are somebody who doesn't necessarily take care of your diet, you might also be that person that probably doesn't exercise and possibly has obesity and possibly smokes. Mm-hmm. And so all of those environmental interactions are sometimes very difficult to piece together. There, there is evidence that red meat is not very good for, for colon cancer, that, that you know it can increase the risk of colon cancer. But if you go to places, I don't know if I've been to South America, red meat is a staple diet in South America. They eat lots and lots and lots of, of, of red meat. And they don't seem to have problems um, with an increased risk, particularly in things like colon cancer. Now, that may be that they are healthy in other ways. And exactly. so that's what, what cancels it out. But I agree. And I think my take on the diet um, is very much that balanced diet that we were sort of designed as omnivores to eat a bit of everything. So mm-hmm. fish, plenty of fiber, fruit, fluid, all of those things are hugely important. And it's got to be whole food that you've got to go to the supermarket and buy the vegetables and the meat and cook them rather than have them processed. And, and if I mean, I'm sure you've done it and I've certainly done it. If you look at what's in those processed packets that you can stick in the microwave, mm. if you actually really, you'd never, ever eat it. I mean, it is, it just can't be very good for you. Now, on occasions, if, it, if you're busy and that's something you have to do, fine. But your goals in life ought to be for good quality, uh, whole foods cooked properly, um, uh, you know, and all those things. And I think th- those things you mentioned, stress, stress is important. Stress may not cause disease, but it certainly exacerbates disease and mm. makes things worse. Um, 
so it can stimulate flares of colitis, it can stimulate problems with irritability and all of that. So avoidance of stress, good sleep patterns, all of those things are clearly important in all of this. Yes, and I think the word that you used there was occasional, if you eat these things occasionally. And I heard this beautiful phrase last week, I think it was on another podcast, uh, it was the solution to pollution is dilution. So if you have a lot of junk all of the time, then of course you're just setting yourself up for an unhealthy bowel and health and mental health, etc. But if you do it now and again, it's, it's not an issue. And it, it, what I like about having ulcerative colitis, ironically, is it makes me very sensitive. So I'm very aware of the effects of food. So at, there is a book, um, the BNF, which uh, you use, I'm sure, but the, it's not going to be known um, to a lot of the people who are listening. So the BNF contains all of the different medicines that have an effect on the human body. And you can read to see what are the side effects, what what they're useful. It's a list of all of the drugs. And I f- personally feel that food should be in there too, because it has an effect. So I know how chili flakes affect me. I know how caffeine affects me. And everything affects everybody differently. And I very much encourage everybody to find out their own bodies and tune in and start to feel what, what effect each thing has on their body. It might not come up in a, in a test that you would do with a nutritionist, but it's just something that you can gauge yourself and to see what agrees with you and what doesn't agree with you. And just fostering a garden within you where, you know, giving your body what it needs and nothing that it doesn't need. Anyway, I'm rambling. No, no, I think that's right. I, I, I do think I, I would just, I, I agree with you entirely. I would just clarify, or I'd, I'd uh, put a caveat to some of that. And I think there are fads at the moment, aren't there? And I think there are people, um, particularly in the US, if you look at how many people are gluten-free in the US, mm-hmm. um, in the United States, and it's about 25% of the population or something. Now, you know, gluten can be useful and helpful in certain circumstances to you. So I think if you are interested to it, I would agree with you, then yes, I think you 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 need to avoid it. But to avoid it because, um, you know, to, to make a choice in isolation without, without just as you're describing, listening to your body and seeing what's happening or all that may, may not be good. And I think lots of people choose to, um, to avoid foods without actually knowing that they're, you know, causing the adverse influence that, that you want. I'm sure if you don't eat gluten, it's probably not terrible for you. But gluten is a huge part of everything and lots and lots and lots of things that we eat. Um, so it's a huge increase, and it, it, it's a sort of worrying trend, almost going the opposite way, having never thought about what you eat, now kind of overthinking it. Um, and I think that you know that whole food business is probably very important. A nice balanced diet is probably what's important as well, and avoiding the things that don't agree with you. Again, very important. So when it comes to the gluten, oh, I'll move on after this, but when it comes to gluten, I didn't know it had uses in the body. Um, in fact, well, I think it, it causes yeah, havoc. It, and normally gluten is always in bread we- or pasta, which I wouldn't consider food anyway, is processed stuff that we should be... I can't think of gluten in anything uh, natural. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just trying to think of something that gluten is in naturally. But if we're trying to have wholesome food, then gluten's off the menu. But it's the the husks of the the material that's made into into, bread, for instance. So bread's got a lot of gluten in it. Wholemeal bread's got more gluten in it. So it comes as part of what else... You know, some of those other good nutritional, those good fiber products will have that as part of it, just simply because that's what, you know, that's where it gets a side effect of, of, of processing the grain to to uh, to make the, the materials that you make bread and things like that out of. So we, I, I guess I agree with you. You wouldn't go eating gluten, um, but it but it can be there present in foodstuffs that uh, that are otherwise useful to you. Okay, well, 
Um, I, uh, bread has never been useful to, to, to me anyway, but um, I get my fibre from vegetables. Never mind, moving on. Um, so, um, as quoted on Cancer Research UK, 13% of bowel cancer cases in the UK are caused by eating processed meat and 28% are caused by eating too little fibre. Huh, where do I begin on that? Now, this would indicate that diet plays an important factor in the prevention of disease. Would you agree? I would say we've, we've sort of covered that already with the pro the processed meats in, in particular. That mm. I think they have not had a bad rap, but again, it, if you have them now and again, you're not going to instantly get cancer. This, this idea of causation and correlation, and Agreed. I yeah. find that extraordinary, and it's never down to one thing. No, and that's sort of what I've been saying about the whole red meat thing. Red meat can be important because it's a good source of iron and it's a good source of this, that, and the other, and protein. So, and I agree to think that to think that there is a causal effect that if you ate processed meat, you would by definition develop colon cancer. I think that's just too big a leap. Mm -hmm. But I would agree with you if you ate processed meat every day of your life, it's possible that that would in increase your risk. It would influence it amongst a number of other. Um, a number of other things that were, were influencing it. But, and, and uh, you know, I, I think to put a number to it like that is probably um, uh, scaremongering almost. I think that's probably overcorn it. 28%, um, that's mm -hmm. a very big number, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think I would agree with you. I think, yes, be careful and moderation and that, you know, um, you know, watching what you eat rather than specifically trying to, you know, just be careful about eating too much processed meat would be the message. Yeah. Um, so... What symptoms are presented in the early stages of colon cancer, something that we can be made aware of? Well, that's the major issue is that often colon cancer in its early stages doesn't cause symptoms. Um, and so when the patient gets symptoms, then not necessarily too late, but then often things are established. Um, and, and the issue is that, that it, it starts as a polyp, so um, the whole um, polyp cancer sequence. So what we recognize in, in simplicity is the fact that all cancers come from polyps. Polyps are small benign growths in the colon, um, a little bit like little warts in the colon. Um, and all cancers come from polyps, but not all polyps come from cancers. Mm -hmm. And I guess what we're trying to, to do, and certainly with screening, which will come on, is to try and not let patients develop symptoms in a way. We want to get to them in that polyp phase rather than in the cancer phase and it's the cancer phase that tends to cause the symptoms. There are some symptoms that polyps can cause and, and, and essentially the, the two key ones are a change in your bowel habit. So if you recognize that most people have a, a, a sort of a routine, a bowel routine, they get up in the morning, they have their cup of coffee and they go to the loo. Um, if that changes and that change persists for a few weeks, in other words, if it changes over the weekend and comes back to normal in the week, that's probably not relevant. But if you've got a change in bowel habits that's persisting for sort of four weeks that you recognize things are different, mm -hmm. um, and often that's a change to a looser and a more frequent stool. So often not constipation, interestingly, but the other way. Mm -hmm. So that's a key factor, so change and persistence. And obviously associated rectal bleeding. So if you start passing blood from the tail end, um, then and it's also associated with a change of bowel habit, clearly those are key uh, symptoms that we look out for. The trouble, of course, is that, that just because you've got those symptoms doesn't necessarily mean you've got cancer. And in fact, the vast majority of those symptoms are caused by very benign conditions. So hemorrhoids can cause bleeding, um, irritability can cause a change in bowel habit. So it's picking out, you know, what is what is an important in someone and what is just part of, of sort of day-to-day -day life living and, and benign conditions. And I guess the message is if you notice those sorts of things, 
don't be frightened to ask the question, should I have this checked out? Now, age is important as well. So if these things are happening in your teenage years, it's unlikely to be cancer. Um, you know, it's, that's just not when cancer occurs. If it's happening in your 40s and your 50s, that's much more relevant. And therefore, those are the people that we need to get to and say, listen, if that's if you've got a change in your bowel habit, if you've got some rectal bleeding, then go to your doctor um, and somebody needs to check that out and make sure there's nothing going on. So they're often subtle um, symptoms. Things like unexplained weight loss as well can also be a, um, a, a feature as well. So change in bowel habit, a bit of weight loss, that tends to be a fairly advanced feature of cancer. But you know those sorts of things um so difficult often often the cancer is already established by the time the symptoms happen but if you do get those symptoms it's worth getting them checked out yeah and it's not about being paranoid but it's just about tuning in and noticing these subtle changes and mm. going to the doctor and then what would be the screening options for colorectal cancer what would be the next stage let's say somebody's listening to this and they have these symptoms and the, or they want to check a few things out because they've maybe somebody in their family has uh, cancer, what would be the screening yep. options for colorectal cancer? So I think this, the screening is slightly different to the symptoms. So so in the UK, they've got a very good system um, if you've got symptoms. So if you go along to your GP, you're in the right age group and you have the right set of symptoms, there is a fast track referral into the hospital to get that checked out. So what we call a two-week target. So you've got to get to the hospital and get it all sorted out within two weeks. And so and there's very specific symptoms like we've just explained, that, that would get you on that pathway. If you're asymptomatic, you've got no symptoms, but you had a worrying family history, or you yourself are worried about it, you're approaching the age of 50 or whatever, and you'd need to know, then I guess that's screening, really. So that's patients who don't have symptoms. And there are three sorts of tests that you can do. You can do a test on the stool, um, looking for blood or looking for things like that in the stool that might indicate that there's a polyp or that there's, there's a problem. You can do a virtual colonoscopy, which is a CT, a, a CAT scan uh, way of looking at the bowel, or you can do a standard colonoscopy, which is the camera test where they pass um, a, a telescope with a camera on the end of it around. So those are the three um, means of, 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 of trying to pick out whether or not you're likely to have polyps or you're likely to have a tumour. And the, um, uh, the colonoscopies that you do, they're done under sedation, so you're sort of awake and you yes. can see the camera. I find that quite cool, really, looking at yes, the screen. So you can, so you can have... Um, with sedation, some people choose not to, um, um, and it's perfectly reasonable. Wow. I have colonoscopies because I've had polyps in the past, and I have them without sedation. It doesn't particularly worry me, and I agree with you. I think it's fascinating looking at what's going on. I guess people think I'm checking up that they're doing it correctly, but I'm not. It's just you know, it's a fascinating thing to be able to look um, at that side of you. You don't often get a view inside of you like that. I know. Um, but you can have sedation, um, uh, and, and it's relatively straightforward to have done. And it is probably the gold standard. If you were to choose any of those three um, options, the way to look really for polyps, and the beauty of a colonoscopy, of course, is if you find polyps, you can remove them at the same time. So it's oh. treatment and diagnosis all at once. So that's probably the best way to do it. That's really cool. And then you also work privately. So I'm on your website, alwinsor.co.uk. That's A-L-W-I-N-D-S-O-R.co.uk. And if somebody wanted to come to see you and not wait two weeks, what would be the process there? I see that you've got a lot of symptoms that you look at, bleeding from the bottom, I imagine mucus as well, difficulty in controlling bowels, itching or soreness, stomach pain, pain when using the toilet. So what's the process when somebody comes to see you? So they can, they can access, so basically, 
currently I work at the London Digestive Centre, which is down in Welbeck Street, and it's a, a sort of an integrated diagnostic centre um, with physicians and surgeons together. We've our own MRI scanner, CT, and everything else. So that's where I see patients, um, and and that you can access that through the website. Um, so you can you can um, request an appointment or speak to Susie, who's my PA. The number's there on that website. I'm very happy to give that number out now yeah, if that's relevant. Go but ahead, Susie yeah. can make all those um, appointments. Do you want me to give the number? Yes, go ahead. Um, it's 020 and that's 3905 3947 um, and we can book an appointment and through that we can have all the investigations, treatments that you need and I work up at Princess Grace Hospital which is um, the sort of admitting hospital for the operation so that's where the surgery takes place, that's just a little way away from here um, but a fabulous hospital with all the facilities that are needed for, for treating people who have um, a diagnosis of colon cancer. And the reason why I chose you to interview onto the podcast today is that you're very much about preventing uh, surgery and, and instilling healthy lifestyle factors and uh, you promote the, the concept of self-care and yes. uh, and I really I really like that about what you do so thank you very much for coming on to the show pleasure great thank, thank you, for, you for having me it's, it's absolute pleasure thank you so for everyone who's listening we'll include all of the details in the description box and it's alwindsor.co.uk thanks again